Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. Are you going to try to sell that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Were your parents morons too? The savvy entrepreneur to the rescue. Congratulations. That really turned out well. I'm really good job. I'm getting ready. I'm ready. You know, I wish I thought of that. I never thought of even one bit. How did you do that? I said, glad you're doing your trip. I wish I had the courage to follow my friends. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting on WLCB 101.5 FM, based in the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. If you're an entrepreneur or a small business person, or you're thinking about becoming one, this show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I've also advised startups and small businesses over the past 30 years. I'm here to share some of the hard lessons I've learned and also to find others willing to share as well. I have guests that join me every week on the show to share their stories and advice. This week's guest is Dr. Sherry Benton. She's the founder and chief science officer of a digital mental health platform called Tau Connect. She created Tau with the mission of offering accessible mental health care to underserved populations. In addition to providing supplemental material for therapists to offer their patients, the company also offers 24-7 evidence-based virtual mental health care to over 200 universities across the country and has recently entered the employer space as well with Tau Connect for employers through their employee benefits program. Dr. Benton, or Sherry, as she says we can call her, is a respected psychologist with more than 25 years of clinical and research experience in counseling and psychology. Her experience as a director in the college counseling world revealed the need for a more efficient and effective way to deliver mental health therapy. She saw students in need of treatment sit on a wait list and by the time they received services may have already lost an entire semester due to mental health issues. She's board certified in counseling psychology by the American Board of Professional Psychology and she's also a fellow in the American Psychological Association. She's well-published and a frequent presenter, and she's also the co-author of a book entitled College Student Mental Health Services and Strategies. So with that introduction, Sherry, thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I think the first uh, the first question is really to talk a little bit more about Tau Connect or TAO Connect. I said a little bit about it in the introduction, but I'm sure there's more um, there's there's a little more to it than that. So talk a little bit about what you do and and who you help. We have 170 different sessions, a whole mindfulness library. We have a lot of uh, assessments to help people kind of evaluate how they're doing and monitor progress. 
uh, just lots of tools and they can be used in a lot of ways. Uh, they can be used as self-help, they can be used as adjuncts to therapy and on the campuses that use them, they kind of create their own courses, some for a first year experience class, others for a series for the athletic department, sometimes for conduct offices, sometimes as part of an academic course. So it gets used in a whole lot of ways in a lot of different departments across campus. Hmm. So for example, I guess it, it might depend on uh, if a student, for example, is dealing with anxiety or maybe you're thinking about a sports team trying to visualize, uh, visualize success. You know, yeah. I'm just kind of I'm, yeah, so, I'm just imagining some of the uses. Yeah, so some of ours are very definitely um, targeting mental health problems like anxiety or depression or eating disorders or substance abuse. But other parts of it really focus on wellness, wholeness, personal development, improving leadership skills and interpersonal communication. So it really covers a wide range of topics. Would you say uh, most of your clients do use the self-help aspect or is it in, in, in conjunction with a class or, or a therapy session or you know, what's the kind of the breakdown more or less? The, the biggest uh, chunk of users are using it for self-help. And one of the things that happened with uh, COVID is the country of Canada developed a platform for mental health for everyone across the country. And one of the tools they provide for self-help for Canadians is Tau. Oh, wow. So, I didn't yeah. realize that. That's amazing. Yeah. So how is your business model unique? I mean, are there other competitors out there or is this a, a pretty new idea? There are a number of companies that provide online mental health resources. I think some of the unique things about us is the, the ability to create courses, you know, to take pieces and put them together the way you want as a therapist or an instructor or a student affairs professional. There's also uh, a lot of assessments that help someone to identify what it is they need to work on and then recommend particular pieces of Tau. You know, you have companies that mostly focus on cognitive behavioral therapy or tools that mostly focus on mindfulness. And what we have is really very broad in terms of what's available. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking I, I did a kind of a, a skip through Amazon and the number of workbooks that are out there on a variety of wellness and Mm -hmm. Well-being, mental health issues is uh, a little overwhelming, actually. There are a lot of them. Yeah. Well, it just goes to show you that there are a lot of people who, at some level at least, are, are aware of mental health. But, you know, and I want to ask you about that. But before that, I have to ask you, where does the name come from? Well, TAO stands for Therapy Assistance Online. So that's ah. the TAO is, but we realized the dual meaning because Tao in Asian countries is a belief system 
that is all about uh, accepting what's happening, sort of rolling with it. And that's kind of what Tao is about as well, is helping people to adjust and live in the life they have. Yeah. Well, certainly mental health issues are underappreciated. And during COVID, perhaps there was more awareness. But, you know, talk a little bit about mental health generally in this country or North America and, and some of the issues that are related to mental health, either in the academic setting or, or the workplace. What I always stress is that taking care of your brain and nervous system is not more or less important than taking care of the rest of your body. You know, we wouldn't hesitate to get help if we had appendicitis and we would tell our friends and we would get surgery and we would do whatever we needed to do to get over the appendicitis. But if the issue has to do with your brain and nervous system, then somehow that's like embarrassing and you have to pretend like it's not happening. Or, and, and when you think about it, that's just plain silly. Your brain and nervous system is just a system of the body like anything else, and it requires being taken care of. You know, we know that attending to your diet has an effect on your physical well-being. We know that exercise has, uh, uh, is really important for the health of your body. <clears throat> so engaging in good mental health habits is very helpful to your brain and nervous system. Yeah. And in fact, the two are often interrelated, I think. Um, yeah, they're not really completely separate. They're, you know, the one affects the other all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even working out, for example, I was, you know, at one point uh, learned that when you work out, it creates little little jolts of, I, I don't know, it's not dopamine, it's, um, it's uh, endorphins, endorphins, and Kevlin's and endorphins, I think. And mm -hmm. that makes you feel better, gives you gives you a little high, you know, a natural high. Um, so that's, that's true. There, there's actually very good research that for people with kind of mild to moderate depression, regular aerobic exercise works as well as most antidepressants. Wow. Well, talk a little bit about COVID. Has that affected, do you think, people's awareness of mental health? And do you think that's going to be permanent or is that just a passing fad? I think there is some awareness and just some adaptation. Uh, I don't think everybody developed mental health problems as a result of COVID. I don't think that's true at all. But I do think there's some segments of the population who suffered pretty, uh, pretty deeply through this. Most everyone I know who works in the medical field uh, was pretty traumatized by the whole thing. Right. I think anyone who is a uh, first responder has really struggled. There's certainly a lot of people who lost family members right. and, or who had very traumatic hospital experiences. So you've got a whole set of people out there who definitely were traumatized by this whole experience. Yeah. And you've got people, people who, who lost jobs, who like struggled with how to take care of their kids right. when they were working from home. So there's a lot of issues that I think uh, heightened awareness of mental, the mental health ramifications of all that. 
you think that's going to be permanent or is that just something that will probably not we're not good at permanently recognizing mental health issues (laughs) so you've thought about this a lot why do you think mental health has been so neglected or underemphasized or uh, pushed down under the table what are some of the reasons that that happens in our society I think there's just been a historical tendency to see that as somehow some kind of weakness where we wouldn't see it if you had appendicitis and we wouldn't see it if you had heart disease and, or if you sprained your ankle or whatever. But for some reason, if it's anxiety or depression or some kind of mental health issue, we act like that is weakness or awful or that somehow you're less because of that, which is, actually kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Well, you know, you and I touched on it earlier um, before the show that um, even insurance companies downplay it. I mean, because you can certainly get into an emergency room for your appendicitis or your broken arm, but if you have mental health issues, the coverage is often quite poor or they make it very difficult, right? Well, there's several pieces to that. One is mental health care is expensive. The primary way we deliver it is 50 minute hour of psychotherapy once a week. And that's expensive. If you think about what if you had that much time with a surgeon or what, or any kind of physician, you know, that is an expensive treatment. Yeah. So I think that's part of it. Interesting. Well, and I I gather your business model was, is kind of a reflection of trying to push the boundaries or push the, the edge of that. And, and some of those assumptions a little bit to say, look, we can do things that make a difference that don't necessarily involve that. Right. Right. The way we started is because we could never keep up with demand at the counseling center I ran. Uh, And we got several new positions and all it did was buy me two more weeks without a wait list. So I knew we were never gonna hire our way out of our problem. And I had to find an alternative way to provide effective services to students that would get them in and get them help immediately. So, we created the first version of Tau really to solve my problem at the university. And what we did was to create these online educational modules and pair them with instead of hour long sessions, 15 or 20 minute sessions with a therapist um, via video conferencing so that the therapist could then see two or three students an hour instead of one. And then what we did was we compared students who were treated with traditional one hour a week psychotherapy with students who were treated with Tau with the very short 15 or 20 minute sessions. And what we found is that the students who were treated with Tau actually made more improvement more quickly. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so at that point, the university said, this is a commercially viable product and we wanna commercialize it And how much do you want to be involved? Interesting. And so what happened next? You've already anticipated one of my next questions, which is how did you 
start this business. And so continue the story of what happened next. So I like to refer to myself as an accidental encore entrepreneur. <laughs> I, uh, I never took a business class and never meant to have a business. But uh, when they came to me and said, we want to commercialize it, I thought about it for a while. And I thought, you know, I really think I want to do this. The university actually created a halftime professorship for me that was focused on creating online mental health resources. That was my entire obligation to the university was doing that. And meanwhile, I licensed the product I'd created from them. And uh, that was kind of how Tau got launched. Uh, I had been the president of a couple national organizations. A lot of people knew me. My book was pretty widely read. So when I started it, I found pretty quickly a set of uh, fellow counseling center directors who wanted to try Tau. Right. And, and, and that gave you a lot of credibility, I think. Well, uh, yeah, they knew me. So they were kind of willing to give it a try. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's certainly the case that untreated mental illness has, I suspect, a lot of trickle down consequences that maybe some of most of us even may not really be aware of. For students, you know, this started in the university setting. I can only imagine you can start to think that it probably affects students' self-esteem, their grades, maybe they drop out um, in the workplace. I don't know. Talk a little bit about some of those kinds of things. Well, one of the things we know is that when people develop anxiety or depression, the first things that are affected are memory and concentration. It is really hard to be a student when you've got impairment to your memory and concentration. But the same is true, you know, if you're just a worker, if you're in business, uh, having maximally effective memory and concentration is important. And the best way to make sure that you have that is to take care of your mental health. Yeah. How did you become so passionate about mental health? I mean, what, what led you into this whole career? So I was a senior in high school when Title IX passed. And I think people think of Title IX as mostly having to do with sports, but it actually had to do with everything in higher education. And up until that point, they would let a few kind of like token women into medical school, dental school, and doctoral programs in psychology. But that year, having that happen my senior year in high school and early in that year, it was like suddenly I had possibilities. And I'd always been fascinated by psychology and mental health. So I decided right then and there that I was going to get a PhD in psychology and dedicate my life to that. And that's what I did. That's amazing. There's so many of us, me included, as a senior in high school, had absolutely no, no idea what we wanted to do or what we ended up doing was pretty darn different from where we started. Yeah. Well, so back to the story of, of your business. So you started licensing, you licensed the product from the university that, um, that uh, under whose umbrella you created some of the uh, original content and then 
started marketing it, I guess, to so other universities? It's probably good to know that at that point, when I decided to start a business, and I like to joke that I owned 100% of a business that was worth $10. So, you know, filed my little paperwork to be a C-Corps, opened a bank account, and there I went. But uh, some really important things I did early on that really helped me because I never had a business class. I, I really couldn't tell you I had any idea what I was getting into. But I figured I can always find people who can help me, which is definitely what happened. But I applied for and got into a healthcare incubator and learned a ton doing that and got uh, lots and lots of help and advice. And as soon as I had uh, mustered enough initial investment, uh, I went out looking for a, a good CEO who had that business background, who could help me with developing this and found a great person who was actually a mentor at the incubator I was in. Oh, interesting. So, all right. So you created, I, I would guess, some of the initial content under the university umbrella, but was it everything that you offer today or just? Oh, no, it was about, I would say at this point, less than 5% of what we offer today. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and so is, is the concept or just that original content, what got licensed from the university and the rest? Yeah. The, actually Tau Connect? Yeah. The platform we created for delivery, the initial content, all of that was licensed from the university. Um, I'm guessing you probably almost needed to create your own platform for the number of clients you have today. I mean, we've been through several iterations of platforms and are, uh, and it's changed pretty dramatically over that time. Well, how did you even, how did you even find out? I mean, I think, I, I think I speak for a lot of entrepreneurs, for those of us who, don't have a background in IT or uh, technology and, and, you know, computers, or maybe we know something about it, but we're not, it's not really our forte. It's pretty daunting. There's just, you know, so many decisions to make. Talk a little bit about that journey. So my first thought I share with people regularly is that Steve Jobs never wrote a line of code. Well, I, that's probably right. It's true. So you don't have to know technology to do this. You have to have a vision for where you want to go with it. And then you have to hire good people who will help you get there. I mean, yeah. Steve Jobs would never have gotten where he got without Wozniak. Yeah. And, you know, I have really good developers and a good partner and CEO that have really helped me to get to where we are today. And talk about the financing side. I mean, were you able to essentially self-finance by marketing this program to universities? That is probably the most challenging thing when you're first getting started. Uh, that first friends and family round. Yeah. As, as, a, as a university person, I had written grants and so 
one of the things I did early on was to write a uh, phase one SBIR grant to the National Science Foundation. And so that was some initial money. And then uh, I really did hit up my friends and family and they invested a little bit of money. We, my husband and I put in, you know, some money ourselves and uh, that kind of got us launched. Getting the NSF grant was huge in terms of having credibility with angel investors. So once I had that and I went to angel investors, uh, I got several to come on fairly quickly. I say fairly quickly now, but that was a year. Yeah. And when you're in the middle of it. It doesn't feel fairly quickly. It feels like a real slog. Yeah. You know, I guess I'm thinking about this. You have a wonderful concept. You have great connections to your community of fellow counselors and other university programs and, and credibility, you know, the connections in order to kind of bounce the ideas off of them and make sure you had a concept that could really work at multiple universities. But then to really sell it, you almost need, you almost need to build the IT platform because otherwise, how do you deploy it, right? So the first version that we built, that sort of the beta Mm-hmm. was really built at the university and um, the student government funds is, you know, that's where we got the money to build the initial platform for the first uh, anxiety treatment program that we built while I was there and tested while I was there. So it was, it was wonderful that the support really came from the students. Yeah. Wow. And and so we had that. So we had a prototype and we had a prototype treatment for anxiety that we could put out there. And we had nine of my professional colleagues who agreed to pay a kind of beta price uh, to test it and use it that first year before we commercially launched. So I actually had revenue before I had any investment money. Wow. What a unique and wonderful situation to be yeah. in. Yeah, that's kind of backwards from what most people experience. That it is, but if you can get it, don't knock it, right? Yeah, it was nice. Yeah. You mentioned angel investors. How did you go about doing that? It's the biggest easy. thing with getting angel money is, I think, having a good idea and being persistent. The things they look for is, you know, can you really pull this off? And I think that initially there was a lot of skepticism because I came from being an academic and there's a lot of feeling that academics have this kind of magical thinking that this will be easy. Ivory ivory tower thinking. Yeah. So there was some skepticism about me because I came from being an academic and they liked the idea, but, you know, it was kind of like, let's see if she really wants to do this. You know, let's make her kind of work for it. Well, so, also, you had no track record before either. It's not like you had. No, and you know, I was. Had, had a great, you know, T-shirt selling business in high school and, you know, yeah. sold it for a bunch of money or whatever. You know, you, you, yeah. you were, as you say, an unlikely entrepreneur in some ways. Oh, yeah. And. At that point, I was turning 60. So a 60-year-old academic who's 
taking her first stab at developing a business. <laughs> but, you know, I do have a lot of passion for it. And I knew I really wanted to do this. And I knew I could put together a team who could do this, even if I didn't know that much about technology. <clears throat> I know an awful lot about psychology and mental health and what works with people. So I started off getting the friends and family, getting the first NSF grant and getting some initial angel fund money. So I think I had all together cobbled together, including the money that my husband and I put in ourselves, about $300,000. Wow, that's, that goes mighty fast. And it does. It does. Start off. We had that. And then we got the NSF first grant, which was 250000 So at that point, I have half a million. So I hired my partner, the CEO of Tao at that point, and, uh, the, and worked for it as a volunteer rather than actually paying myself. So uh, we got started. We started working together, both getting investors and selling at the same time, because we had a product we could actually sell. So we went from nine beta testers and uh, revenue of about $150,000 that you add to what we had in investment. And then beta tested that whole first year. Then July of 2015, we commercially launched and we just grew from there. And we just developed more content and more content and more content. And it was it was much easier to develop content with NSF grant money because, you know, it's as long as you do what you said you were going to do, it's free money. Well, there's that, but also it's really looked at in a different way. It's about scaling because you, you put together the initial modules and you were able to test it. You learned what worked and what didn't work, what, what people mm -hmm. seem to respond to, what they didn't. Uh, both in terms of, of the users, but also the, the buyers of it. And um, then I'm sure building additional content with all of that feedback in mind became a lot easier. It was uh, a process you, you could probably replicate in some ways, right? Absolutely. And we did over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. I should add the very first set of uh, sessions that we created and tested when I was still at the university, the feedback from the students came back that this is good information and it is really boring. Ah, <laughs> yeah. That, that was really important to know and yeah. you know before you tried to do anything like a business. So we redid the whole thing. We tested different kinds of materials, you know, animations, actors and scenes, uh, someone doing giving a little feedback, you know, this is just like a talking head, you know, just uh, interactive exercises, some gamification. So we tried a lot of different things to come up with. What's the mix that seems to keep people engaged and moving forward? Yeah. So you were able to use all of that feedback as you developed more content. You said recently you've gotten into the employee space. You started pretty clearly in the university setting, trying to help students with mental health issues. You didn't mention whether it was also for staff and faculty who, who I'm sure also suffer from, from mental health. 
but then you branched off into the employment world. How did that happen? So you kind of guessed it in that one of the first things that happened is faculty and staff wanted to use the tools in Tau. So we worked with a lot of employee assistance programs at universities who wanted to extend the benefits of Tau to all of their faculty and staff, not just their students. So we started there and it worked pretty well and they liked it pretty well. So we thought this really should go out to other kinds of uh, businesses. You know, there's some huge high dollar companies that provide wellness and mental health resources to companies, but they're really focusing on the Coca-Colas and the, you know, Microsoft and the big businesses. And there are hundreds of thousands of small businesses and startups and companies that would love to have those resources for their employees. But those big companies are completely financially out of reach. And we really try to focus on giving affordable, but really effective resources to small and middle-sized businesses. Yeah. You mentioned the, the cost. I gather that some of these programs are really, you have to have pretty deep pockets to afford the services that the Coca-Colas of the world, or maybe Amazon's are offering. Yeah. In contrast, universities don't have much money. So we did a really good job of building excellent materials that are on kind of a shoestring budget, like sort of recognizing that student affairs is not the deep pocket on most university campuses, and that's who's usually paying for Tau. So we got good at being really effective and really agile and making this affordable to schools, large or small. And we're extending that to the business world, where if you're a, a small company with a small staff, you can probably still afford Tau. Give me an idea of the, the scale that we're talking about. What does a traditional Coca-Cola wellness program cost? I guess per employee is how a lot of HR people think to think about it. So a lot of them are like $50 or more uh, uh, an employee. And we are more like 4 or $5 an employee per year. That's pretty huge. Yeah, we, we really work hard at making this absolutely doable. I mean, you know, our mission is to bring effective mental health resources to underserved populations. And all of those small businesses, all those places people work that aren't huge and don't have huge budgets, they need resources just as much as the giant corporations. Where do you see your business in, say, three years? What's next for Tao? I think we're just going to keep keeping on. Um, There's a lot of directions we can grow. I really am excited about growing in the business world because I think that that's a big one for so many companies that are small and so many employees, you know, that don't have access to those resources or haven't in the past. But I also think things like justice systems and corrections, you know, unfortunately in the U.S., because mental health is so underfunded, the single largest provider of mental health resources is the prison system. Oh my, Uh, I never thought about that. 
Yeah. And, and getting effective services out to that population is pretty critical. The other thing is um, there's not comparable kind of programs for kids K through 12. And I would really like to grow in that direction too. Yeah. Not to mention there's probably lots of things that you could do in the employment world. When I first heard about your business, I thought it was maybe like telehealth, you know, mental health sessions via telephony, but it's really not that at all. But is that an angle that you've thought about or you've decided that's just not where you want to head this business? Yes, we think about that a lot and going to, you know, we get used in Canada as part of stepped care, where rather than everybody getting the one hour once a week with the therapist, you do an assessment and evaluate what level of care does somebody need? Is somebody likely to respond to self-help? Do they need a little peer support? Would a paraprofessional support be enough? Would the very short sessions like those that we started out with in Tau work so that you, that you use a lot of different levels of care depending on acuity, chronicity, and just what the presenting problems are? And that's really, I think, a model that's caught on in the world. It's the dominant model in Australia, New Zealand, most European countries, Canada, and it's slower to get adopted in the U.S. But if we're really going to meet the need, we have to go there. And I can see Tau sort of growing into being uh, effective tool in stepped care and developing a, you know, maybe a peer support network and uh, a network of coaches rather than just therapists, and that you get selected into a level of care based on how severe your problems are, how long you've had them, and what are you most likely to benefit from, and then regularly do progress measures so that you can move people up or down in terms of the intensity of care based on what they're needing in that moment. Yeah. And I'm even envisioning the personality of the individual and their preferences. I mean, there are people Mm -hmm. who absolutely love workbooks and self-help books and will do the classes and will benefit from those and maybe just need, you know, a little accountability or a helping hand or support. And there are others, Mm -hmm. you can give them a whole huge pile of workbooks and they'll, they'll think about it, but they never touch them. Right. So looking back, what would you say has been the hardest thing about starting and running your own business? Oh my goodness. Where do I even start? It, it's nerve wracking. It's so different from anything else I've done. Um, I think the sweating it out, the financial aspects in the early years was probably the, the most tense part of it. Finding good people, then you can like kind of move forward pretty well. But it's the it's that economic part, you know, getting through those first two or three years that was the most harrowing. Is it just the pressure of trying to make sure that every single dollar counts and where of all the different places you could spend money, where where to actually spend it to have the impact? Well, here's one of the moments always remember. We really operated on pretty much of a shoestring. We've had, I think, three and a half million in an in investment 
a little over 2 million in NSF grants and then revenue. And we early on heard about a company doing something very similar to us who had 29 million in investment out in Silicon Valley. And they managed to spend the entire thing in about a year and a half and went bust. And we were all sitting in Florida going, how the hell do you blow $29 million? So that like starting with thinly funded angel and trying to do this almost bootstrapping, but not quite was, that was stressful. It was tense, but it was also worth it in that we weren't giving away that much equity early on. And uh, it really forced us to have to focus on sales and have to focus on and bringing a product that our customers really wanted. And I, I think the thing that we became really well known for is customer service, of listening to our customers, listening to what they want, listening to what they wished we would build, and then building that. Yeah, you know, it's in, it's interesting. You you don't have a background in customer service either, although I guess listening is probably a pretty pretty valuable skill for someone in psychology. And really to to do good customer service, you need to listen. But and I maybe I'm answering my own question. I was gonna ask about sales too. I mean, I'm thinking sales is kind of far from being a college counselor providing counseling services, and yet you succeeded at both of them. How did that happen? Darned if I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if you think about it, certainly what you're doing when you're in psychology is interpersonal influence. And, you know, that I definitely brought to the task, but I also found good people to work with. And that includes people in sales and people in customer service. Yeah. So that's the hardest thing. What's been the best thing about running your own business? I'm really proud of what we've built. It's really pretty amazing. And just how many people we have helped over the years that we've been in business. Some of the comments that we get on our, you know, people fill out a little form at the end of each session in terms of what they thought of it. And people will send us notes about the difference that it made. And those things are just so huge. It makes it really worthwhile. You know, what you're doing really is touching people in a very deep and important way. I mean, yeah, it's nice if you make great t-shirts or candles that people like, but this is affecting their mental and maybe even physical well-being their whole life. Yes. It's very satisfying. I can imagine. Well, looking back, what advice would you offer to other entrepreneurs who are just getting started? I think that um, some of the smartest things I did was to get in the incubator. NSF did a huge amount of training in how to start a business. And that was really, really helpful. So don't assume you know how and go learn. You know, take advantage of those people who are out there who can help you. Apply to incubators and accelerators. Those things make an enormous difference and really cut out a lot of the early mistakes and missteps 
that uh, first-time business people can make. The other thing I have to say about doing that is it's so normalizing. You know, like when you get a bad developer and all kinds of, you know, chaos happens as a result and, you know, you go talk to other people who are also starting businesses or people who are mentoring folks starting businesses and they'll be, they'll say, oh yeah, this happened to us and that happened to us. It's kind of like suddenly you don't feel like you're this disastrous failure who's made this terrible mistake. It's like, oh, this is normal. Yes, this is normal. That's so helpful. It is just so helpful to be connected to other entrepreneurs. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like you really made some great hires. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are trying to figure out who to hire and how to hire the right contractors and employees to help them? Well, when a lot of times when you're just starting out, you don't have the big salaries or the benefits to give people. So uh, stock options, definitely get people who are invested in your success. And stock options is a good way to do that. My business partner, often says, be slow to hire and quick to fire. And that's not how you ever operated when you're in a university, but it's really important as a new business. So true. Well, we're almost out of time, but if people are interested in connecting with you or learning more about Tau Connect Services, what's the best way for them to find you? I will give you my email address. It's sherry.benton at taoconnect, taoconnect.org. And the website, I'm, I'm sure the website is full of some pretty good teasers or resources mm-hmm. that are in front of the paywall that people can access to get an idea of what you have to offer too. Yes. And that is www.taoconnect. That'll get you there. Great. Sherry, I want to say thank you for being on the show this week. It was great having you and really great to shine a little bit of spotlight on the great things that you and Tau Connect are doing. And in fact, the very important issues related to mental health. So thanks again for your time today and for being on the show. And thank you for having me. Now, in the few minutes we have left, I'd like to talk about a topic that is not talked enough about, I think, around entrepreneurs. And that's the subject of loneliness. You know, as in, is lonely at the top. And we say it very flippantly, because hey, CEOs are supposed to have things together, right? They're can-do people, they're driven people, often natural salespeople, very passionate and enthusiastic about their company and its products and its mission. And often it can be hard for others to sense loneliness and isolation. Oh, but it's there. A survey from this year, 2021, by RHR International found that half of CEOs say they feel lonely. And 61% of those believe that this feeling hinders their performance. That's pretty consistent with other studies. A 2018 study published in the Journal of Leadership and Organizations found that CEOs are lonelier both inside and outside their work. 
Even famous business guru Simon Sinek recently has taken to the air with the theme of begging CEOs never to cry alone. What makes CEOs lonely anyway? Well, it could be a combination of things. Maybe different for different CEOs. Maybe they were colleagues or peers or friends with coworkers, but now share a unique burden. There are some things that only the CEO can handle, and that's why the expression is there of the buck stops here. It's a burden that, you know, it's a burden that comes with the job. There may be a feeling that they're not sure who they can truly trust. Sometimes things confided in confidence come back to bite them. All too often, many CEOs start holding back and holding things in until their team and their reports start to feel like they don't really share anything at all. And that's not good. It's not good for the team. It's not good for the CEO either. But there are things that CEOs or business heads can do to alleviate loneliness when it happens. And it's important that if that's you, that you reach out. No one of us is great at everything. So you need a safe place to get feedback, bounce ideas off of, work on weaknesses. Here are some things CEOs have found helpful. An executive coach. Hey, athletes have coaches. Look at the Olympics. Even the best professional sports athletes. A Stanford study says nearly two-thirds of CEOs do not have coaches, though. Look, all CEOs need external feedback. And they need positive reinforcement, too. A coach can help a CEO not only spot and address weaknesses, but can be helpful in providing perspective. Sometimes if you hear repeatedly that you're not alone, that you're what you're dealing with or experiencing is not unique, that can be comforting. You can find executive coaches often through word of mouth, asking colleagues, and you may end up trying more than one before finding the right fit. Another strategy CEOs use is to find a mentor. A mentor ideally is someone who's been down whatever path you're currently on. Could be a college friend or neighbor, or a friend of friends, or you can find them through college alumni groups, professional groups, and even networking are great ways to find one. If you meet or someone, know someone you connect with, Think about why that is and what you both bring to the relationship, but don't be afraid to ask for someone to help mentor you. Most people will hear you're a CEO and assume you probably have it all figured out. They'll never know until you ask, and even if they say no, they may know of someone else and will be flattered you ask. Mastermind groups are another option. These are groups of professionals that meet regularly to share problems and challenges and give each other feedback. Mastermind groups can come in lots of shapes and flavors. Some are made up of business leaders from very different fields where unusual insights sometimes can be found across industries. Some mastermind groups cater to specific industries or specific types of positions, such as pre-seed founders and CEOs. And again, you may end up trying several before you find the right one for you. There are combinations of this. The best known is probably Vistage, been around for a long time. They're groups of, you know, 10 to 12 or so CEOs that meet regularly with a facilitator. They're like a mastermind group, but they're led by an executive coach. 
and everybody pays a fee to be part of the group, which helps pay the facilitator or executive coach, helps bring in external experts and speakers, and, and really make sure everyone has a stake in participating. Another option people might not think about is to diversify your own management team. The best management teams are the ones that can be open and candid with feedback. If you can develop and evolve a management team that has diverse thinking and welcomes constructive criticism and feedback, it'll trickle down through your whole organization, creating a much healthier workplace for everyone, the CEO included. Another option might be to give back. Many CEOs find it deeply rewarding to give back, and that experience also helps ground them and feel connected and valued. And finally, find hobbies and activities. Maybe take up something again you used to do, but put aside, or something that's on your bucket list that you've always wanted to do. And like giving back, this helps discover meaning elsewhere in your life, and perhaps achieving accomplishments that are unrelated to work that can provide balance and perspective. Whatever you do, if you're feeling lonely, do something. As Simon Sinek says, business leaders should never cry alone. Our show for this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. You're the reason I'm here. There are lots of resources on my website, www.globalocityservices.com. There are blogs, tools, podcasts, and other resources there for entrepreneurs. And because the show is for you, my listeners, the door is always open for comments, questions, and suggestions, or just to shoot the breeze. You can always email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org, and I promise I'll respond. And a special thank you one more time to my guest this week, Dr. Sherry Benton. She's the founder and chief science officer of the digital mental health platform called TAO Connect or Tau Connect. Now, be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.